0: New season out on Spotify soon. Hi, listeners. Due to the unfortunate spread of COVID 19, Parcast has decided to temporarily halt recording this week. Although it saddens us to interrupt your listening experience, we feel that it's a necessary precaution to ensure the safety of our hosts and staff. In lieu of this week's episode, I'm thrilled to share with you some exceptional episodes from another series I host called Female Criminals. For all you fans of our cults podcast, you'll find these episodes on the cult-like methods of murder by Dr. Linda Burfield-Hazard to be absolutely fascinating. Her crimes included abuse, fraud, and perhaps most famously, starvation. You can examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of other female felons by following the podcast series Female Criminals on Spotify. New episodes premiere every Wednesday. Listen free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode features graphic descriptions of the effects of starvation that some people may find disturbing. Extreme caution is advised, especially for children under 13. In 1911, Claire Williamson lay limp on her bed. At around 70 pounds, the 33-year-old woman was fading quickly. She had wasted away, both mentally and physically, until she could barely speak. Claire's sister Dorothea, who she called Dora, too weak to walk herself, was carried into the room by a doctor. As she was placed by Claire's bedside, Dora took note of her sister's emaciated face. Claire was so gaunt, she was almost unrecognizable. Realizing Dora was beside her, Claire let out an almost indecipherable whisper. She wished to speak to her sister alone. The doctor lingered outside of the door as Claire struggled to speak to her sister one last time but she was too weak to utter a single word. This was exactly what the doctor wanted. As she loomed in the doorway, she commended herself for a job well done. Dora and Claire had entrusted their lives and valuables to her, but the doctor took advantage of their naivety. Slowly and systematically, she'd drained them of their strength and they'd paid her for the privilege. After all, this woman was no doctor. Linda Burfield Hazard was a con artist, but worst of all, she was a murderer. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and you're listening to Female Criminals, a ParCast original. You can find episodes of Female Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Female Criminals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Female Criminals in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCastNetwork. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. Today, we're covering Dr. Linda Burfield Hazard, a turn-of-the-20th-century medical practitioner who preached starvation as a method of curing disease. This week, we'll see how Linda's childhood exposure to fad medicine not only left her ill for much of her youth, but shaped her interest in alternative medicine— We'll also follow Linda as she established her first macabre starvation practices. Next week, we'll follow Linda as she builds a sanitarium in Washington, the Hazard Institute of Natural Therapeutics, or as locals ominously called it, Starvation Heights. And finally, we'll see how two sisters expose Linda's horrific malpractice for what it truly was, murder. Linda Laura Burfield was born in Carver, Minnesota, to Susanna Neal and Montgomery Burfield in 1867. Montgomery was a corporal in the 9th Minnesota Infantry during the Civil War, and was, by all accounts, a doting father to his children. Linda had a loving childhood in Starlake Township in central Minnesota. The eldest of seven children, she was outgoing and interested in the outdoors. It was during her youth that Linda was first introduced to the idea of restricting one's diet for health benefits. Linda's parents kept a largely vegetarian household, a common practice at the time. Previous activists such as Reverend William Metcalf and Sylvester Graham founded the American Vegetarian Society and alternative medicine practitioners, such as Dr. John Harvey Kellogg, promoted vegetarianism as a means of biologic living. While these minor dietary restrictions likely had some small effect on Linda's eventual belief in starvation cures, it was her childhood doctor that left the most lasting impact. Linda's father, Montgomery, put a great amount of trust in the burgeoning medical establishment and believed his children should see a physician whether they were sick or well. He thought that modern medicine could not only cure illnesses, but prevent them from happening in the first place. Although Montgomery acted out of love, the outcome of these supposedly preventative treatments were devastating. The family's doctor told Montgomery his children were suffering from intestinal parasites, despite the fact that none of them showed any symptoms. Though his motivations for fabricating the illness are unknown, the misdiagnosis is most likely a case of misinformation in antiquated medicine. And so, the doctor prescribed the Burfield children blue mass pills, a common 19th century cure that contained licorice, althea glycerol, rose honey, and large amounts of mercury. The history of mercury's medical use is extensive. Ancient Greek and Arabic cultures utilized mercury compounds to treat venereal disease, and mercury itself later became popular in the US as a treatment for syphilis. One mercury-based medicine used to treat Linda, calomel, was known as a cathartic, meaning it induced severe vomiting and diarrhea. Today, we know that ingesting mercury causes severe poisoning, and its side effects are debilitating, both physically and mentally. Before I continue with Linda's psychology, please note that I'm not a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. According to the American Journal of Psychiatry, ingesting mercury or its compounds leads to muscle weakness, issues with coordination, and even trouble seeing and speaking. Calomel in particular was known to inflict horrible side effects. In addition to causing gum inflammation and tooth loss, exposure could also inflict neurological symptoms such as psychosis, dementia, and even personality changes. Though there's no recorded evidence of exactly how mercury poisoning impacted Linda psychologically, she certainly suffered from its more tangible side effects. As a child, Linda experienced frequent vomiting and diarrhea. Her teeth fell out, and she was chronically tired and thin. Eventually, Linda came to understand that it was the treatment provided to her by her childhood doctor that had made her ill, not her alleged parasites. Years later, she wrote, I now know that this powerful poison did irreparable injury to my intestines, retarding and preventing their development and growth to such a degree that even to this day I'm compelled to resort to the enema daily. Though it's unclear exactly when Linda came to this revelation, by age 18 she'd stopped seeing her doctor and claimed independence over her physical well-being. Around this same time, she also met her first husband, 32-year-old Irwin A. Perry. In 1886, Linda married Irwin and started a new chapter. She was in love and slowly regaining her health, but what should have been a joyous time was soon plagued with despair. Linda lost her father, Montgomery, only one month after her wedding. She carried that grief for the rest of her life. Three years after Linda's marriage to Irwin, the couple moved to Fergus Falls, Minnesota. There, 21-year-old Linda gave birth to a son named Rollin in August of 1889, and two years later their daughter, Nina Floyd, was born. Nina was oddly absent from the Perry household Those who knew the family recalled very few people ever saw or heard from her. But those who had met Nina said Linda was strangely cold toward her only daughter. Helen Buchanan, a family friend, recalled Linda's bizarre mothering style. Helen remembered that whenever Nina asked for a new dress, Dr. Hazard would always give her money for material but never buy her a new dress. Helen didn't believe Linda and Nina had a normal kind of mother-daughter bond. In fact, she characterized it as harsh. Much later, after Linda's death, she left Nina a single $1 bill in her will, and nothing more. It was almost worse than leaving her with nothing at all. But while Linda seemingly resented Nina, she adored her son, Rollin, and often spoiled him. Helen Buchanan felt these affections were misplaced. She described the boy as worthless. But Linda's dichotomous relationships with her children weren't all that was strange about the Perry family. In 1898, when Nina and Rollin were still young, Irwin inexplicably disappeared. Over four years later, in the fall of 1902, 34-year-old Linda filed for divorce in Hennepin County, Minnesota. She claimed Irwin had abandoned her and their children without a trace, with no indication of his whereabouts. But 1898, the year Irwin vanished, was also the year Linda later claimed she began treating herself through fasting. Whether Irwin left Linda afterward or if Linda's starvation was in response to the trauma from his abandonment is unclear. According to a report by Missouri Western State University's Department of Psychology, abandoned spouses go through similar emotional processes as those whose partners have died. However, the abandoned spouse experiences the additional pain of rejection and often lacks community support during their time of intense loss. As a result, those who are left behind often have to restructure their lives in order to support themselves and their children. On top of this new financial instability, they may also go through an identity crisis. It's possible that Linda's obsession with fasting was a way for her to rediscover herself. According to a study in the academic journal Frontiers in Nutrition, fasting often results in a sense of achievement, pride, and self-control, despite increased hunger and irritability. During such an unstable time in Linda's life, restricting her diet likely helped provide a sense of power amidst the trauma of her husband's abandonment. This renewed ownership she felt over her own life very well could have led her to transform herself entirely. After Irwin left, Linda began studying osteopathy in pursuit of a nursing career. Then in 1902, when her divorce from Irwin was finalized, she sent her children to live with her mother. Around this time, Linda discovered the works of Dr. Edward Hooker Dewey, an alternative medicine and fasting specialist. She read his books voraciously. In one, titled The Gospel of Health, Dr. Dewey wrote about a typhoid fever case he took in 1877. He claimed that fasting, which he called letting nature take her course, cured his patient in just 30 days. Linda was riveted. Not long after, Linda also discovered Dewey's essay, The No Breakfast Plan. The plan argued that overeating is the cause of all disease, and that skipping breakfast and only consuming two meals per day would heal both mental and physical disorders. The method completely revolutionized her medical philosophy. Inspired by Dewey's teachings, in 1902, Linda established her very own practice in Minneapolis. But what began as an idealistic philosophy and healing would soon devolve into something much deadlier. Coming up, Dr. Linda Burfield Hazard's starvation methods claim their first victim. Now back to the story. In 1902, 34-year-old Linda Burfield had reached a pivotal period of transition. After her husband abandoned her in 1898, Linda was desperate to take back control of her life. She went to school for nursing and adopted a fasting regimen. Eventually, she discovered the writings of Dr. Edward Hooker Dewey, a fasting specialist she studied under for years until his death. Then, in 1902, galvanized by her studies, Linda opened a private practice operating out of her apartment in downtown Minneapolis, Minnesota. Though it's unclear if Linda actually had a medical license. At the time, the study of medicine was going through a major period of transformation, and the standards for licensure were inconsistent. In fact, most medical schools were for-profit institutions, meaning the only requirement for both acceptance and graduation was that students were able to pay the school's fees. But what Linda may have lacked in medical knowledge, she made up for in business savvy. She heavily advertised her new practice. In her ads, Linda claimed that fasting could cure almost any disease. In one, she stated, Cases pronounced incurable by medical physicians recovered under the regimen I imposed. Symptoms presented ranged from chronic constipation, diabetes, and syphilis to paralysis. Linda's ads earned her several clients, and as she established herself in the community, her practice began to grow. And soon, Linda met her first alleged victim, Gertrude Young. 41-year-old Gertrude had experienced a stroke that left one foot and one arm completely useless. For years, she'd been living in a hopeless state of partial paralysis. Treatment by a doctor could only ease the pain. Her limbs would never recover. Gertrude was unhappy with her existence. Her face drooped slightly from her stroke, and because she was unable to dress herself or perform other basic tasks, she was forced to rely on others around the clock. She yearned for a permanent cure. When traditional medicine offered her no solutions, she searched for another answer. That's when she found Dr. Hazard. Gertrude first started seeing Linda in her Minneapolis apartment practice. She was prescribed a strict fasting regimen. But three weeks into her treatment, Gertrude began experiencing horrible side effects. One morning, she woke up to a vomiting fit so violent it crippled her. And when her staff opened the windows of her bedroom, the fresh air only seemed to make her condition worse. Worried for her mistress's health, a nurse called a licensed physician, Dr. U. G. Williams, who had treated Gertrude in the past. She urged him to come see Gertrude immediately. Once Dr. Williams arrived, he was shocked at what he found. Gertrude's skin was a pasty yellow, and her body sunken. He demanded that she break her fast immediately, but Gertrude refused. Linda had imposed a 40-day fast, and she was set on continuing the regimen, convinced it would be her miracle cure. There was nothing Dr. Williams could do. Shortly after Williams' visit, on November 18, 1902, Gertrude passed away. She made it to the 39th day of Linda's recommended 40-day fast before succumbing to starvation. At the time of her death, she weighed only 105 pounds. Linda attributed Gertrude's cause of death to her chronic paralysis, but Dr. Williams would prove her wrong. He was also the county coroner and insisted on performing a post-mortem exam on Gertrude's body and just like he expected, he found that Gertrude had indeed died of starvation. Dr. Williams was baffled by Linda. What could possibly be her motivation for starving her client? But soon he received his answer. Investigators discovered that Gertrude was missing large amounts of jewelry and a number of expensive items from her home. It's assumed Linda had killed Gertrude, For her wealth. Linda claimed Gertrude had bequeathed her jewelry to a certain nurse who worked at her practice, but conveniently, no one was able to track the woman down. In light of the investigation's findings, Dr. Williams pursued legal action against Linda. The Minneapolis Daily Times printed a front page headline that read, Coroner in Crusade Against Starvation Curist Urges Prosecution as Sequel to Woman's Death. That winter, 34 year old Linda took to the media to defend her case. In an interview with a reporter, she said Gertrude was well on her way to recovery, claiming she'd regained the use of her right foot and even her arm. She blamed Gertrude's decline on her patient. Linda alleged that over time, Gertrude stopped cooperating with her medical recommendations. Linda also claimed that Gertrude eventually admitted that another doctor had diagnosed her with a fatal disease, in addition to her incurable paralysis. According to Linda, no matter what treatments she prescribed, she wouldn't have been able to save her client's life. Regardless of the veracity of Linda's claims, ultimately, she escaped prosecution. There were no laws against the practice of fasting in the state of Minnesota, and therefore, there were no legal grounds on which to pursue the case. But it wouldn't be long before she found herself in court for a very different kind of case. Less than a year after Gertrude's murder, 35-year-old Linda met 33-year-old Samuel Hargrave. Sam was tall, handsome, and earned the attention of many women, so much so that when Linda and Sam met in 1903, he was already married. Sam's wife, Viva Fitzpatrick, was the daughter of a wealthy state senator from Iowa. After their wedding, the pair moved to Minneapolis. It's unclear exactly when or how Linda and Sam met, but shortly after, they began an affair. But Sam's liaison with Linda wasn't the only secret he was harboring. Years before, unknown to Viva, he had married another woman under a different name, Sam Hazard. Sam eventually left his first wife, bringing with him large amounts of debt. During this time, Sam adopted the surname Hargrave to throw investigators off his trail. Sam needed help paying off his debts, and soon he found not one, but two wealthy women to assist him – Viva and Linda. Neither knew of the other's existence until October of 1903, when Sam inexplicably introduced Viva to Linda as his wife. The next day, Linda sent Viva a series of vitriolic letters. They were anonymous, but spoke of a long-standing affair. Viva was beside herself. According to a study entitled Sex Differences in Attitudes Toward Partner Infidelity by researchers Michael J. Tagler and Heather M. Jeffers, men tend to become more upset if a significant other's infidelity is primarily sexual rather than emotional. However, women consider emotional infidelity in addition to sex as a much greater betrayal than sex alone. When both Viva and Linda learned that Sam was involved with another woman, they were distraught. Viva begged Sam to limit contact with Linda, and Sam vowed he would. But just a few weeks later, on November 11, 1903, he did just the opposite. He married her. Four days later, Sam not only revealed to Viva that he had married Linda, but he also claimed that their own marriage was never legitimate. There was no record of their union in Minnesota, likely because he was married under the false name Hargrave. But Viva wasn't going down without a fight. Viva and her senator father filed bigamy charges against Sam. The trial captivated all of Minneapolis. The story was ripe for drama, a scandalous love triangle in which a female doctor and the daughter of a state senator fought over their right to be married to a con man. It almost felt like fiction. Headlines read, Neither Will Give Up Hazard and hundreds gathered in the courtroom as Linda and Viva argued over who was legally married to Sam. Linda claimed she paid over $10,000 to help Sam with his defense. But no matter how hard Linda fought the case, the letters exchanged between Viva and Sam convinced the jury that the pair were in fact married when Sam and Linda wed. On February 9, 1904, the court sentenced Sam to two years in prison for bigamy. During his time in jail, Viva stood by Sam's side and he by hers. It appeared he fell back in love with her. However, Sam's history of financial motivations and considerable debt may imply otherwise. Biva had just conveniently received an inheritance from an uncle and was working on procuring a $5,000 appeal bond for her husband. Linda was left heartbroken once again. She declared to the press, If Mr. Hazard has chosen to state that he would marry the Iowa girl when released from prison, I have at least done what I could to fulfill my marriage vows to love, honor, and cherish. But shortly after Sam's release from jail, he experienced yet another change of heart. He returned to Linda's side, and the two began running Linda's practice together. Linda was elated and apparently showed no ill will towards Sam for abandoning her for Viva while in prison. Instead, she was determined to give their life together a fresh start. In 1906, they moved to Washington State, seemingly to escape their sordid reputation in Minnesota. There, Linda got to work. Once again, she operated her practice out of her apartment, without a full staff, all the while writing her first book. In 1908, 40-year-old Linda published Fasting for the Cure of Disease— Her writings laid the groundwork for her fasting program, as well as key pieces of what would later become her legal defense. For instance, she explained, Death in the fast never results from deprivation of food, but is the inevitable consequence of vitality sapped to the last degree by organic imperfection. This was an explanation that Linda seemingly established after Gertrude Young's murder. Years later, Linda would consistently attribute her victim's cause of death to whatever pre-existing condition they had complained of before entering treatment. In another passage, Linda laid out a series of beliefs that exemplify her disdain and blatant rejection of traditional medical practices. She wrote, Professional dicta assert that permanent injury will result from the continued use of the enema and that the germ is the cause of disease. Each of these opinions is dogmatically denied, and its opposite declared to be the truth. Linda's book lured even more patients to her practice. She advertised fasting for the cure of disease in newspapers across the country. And soon, followers of alternative medicine nationwide wrote in to obtain her advice. But as her popularity rose, so did her murderous potential. Coming up, we'll see how two wealthy British sisters, Claire and Dorothea Williamson, discovered the doctor's deadly fasting program. Now, back to the story. In 1908, 40 year old Linda Burfield moved to Washington with her new husband, Sam Hazard. There, they expanded her practice and she wrote her first book. And soon enough, its writings lured Linda's next two victims into her grasp, 34-year-old Claire and 38-year-old Dorothea Williamson. Claire and Dorothea, who also went by Dora, experienced death early in their lives. By the time the pair reached adulthood, they had lost their father, their mother, and two sisters. Claire and Dora were worth millions. Not only did they have cash assets, but also land holdings in Canada, the US, England, and Australia. They spent much of their time traveling around the world, visiting their many properties. And although well-educated, the two sisters, but particularly Claire, had a childish naivety about them. Catered to their whole lives, the women had little real-world experience. This made them exceptionally susceptible to the likes of Dr. Linda Burfield Hazard. On top of their ingenuousness, Claire and Dora experienced a variety of minor ailments during their lives. Claire was diagnosed with a dropped uterus, which a doctor told her was affecting her spine and inflaming her reproductive organs. Previously, she suffered from a sensitive stomach that she believed to be brought on by nervous exhaustion. Claire attributed her illness to what she deemed the circumstances of her birth. Claire's father was injured while serving in India, and Claire's mother worried terribly about him throughout her pregnancy. Only two months after Claire was born, her father passed away. According to Cambridge University Press, Early traumatic experiences can affect a child's response to stress and increase anxiety disorders. Termed bio-behavioral synchrony, a mother's trauma can affect the way a child copes with difficulties for the rest of their lives. Claire may have absorbed her mother's worry during her time as a baby, which may have manifested in psychosomatic symptoms. Throughout much of her childhood, Claire was afflicted with mostly undiagnosed medical issues. Some of these illnesses may have been physical displays of the pain she felt from absorbing her mother's stress so early in life. Because Claire often experienced stomach issues as a child, doctors advised her to rest often. As a result, Claire spent much of her earliest years in bed. Later, Claire remembered being incredibly stressed as a child. She described being very nervous and constantly crying. Dora also experienced her own ailments. She claimed she suffered from acute rheumatic pains and swollen glands. However, a cousin of the two sisters once claimed, being rich is the cause of all their problems. Claire and Dorothea are ill because they can afford to be ill. And though we don't know whether the sisters suffered from true, debilitating illnesses or twin cases of hypochondria, one thing is for certain. They spared no expense on any treatment they believed may cure them. The sisters sought out many forms of alternative medicine. For instance, they entered a water therapy program in Riverside, California, where they drank gallons of water at a time in order to flush their systems. These sessions didn't make much of a difference, however, and Claire felt the doctor's suggestions weren't helping her dropped uterus. In another treatment, the physician advised Claire to put boric acid and glycerin-soaked cotton batting inside her vagina for three days a week. But Claire was disappointed with the outcome. The treatment only caused her more pain. Disheartened, she searched for her next possible cure. She found an ad for Linda's book, Fasting for the Cure of Disease, in a local California newspaper. Claire felt as though she'd looked everywhere for answers, and only been disappointed again and again. But when she discovered Linda's ad, it was everything she was looking for—new hope. So on September 2, 1910, the sisters mailed $1.25 to request a copy. Almost $35 today. When they finally received the book, one passage in particular captivated them. Linda wrote, It should not require an exhaustive argument to establish the fact that disease has its origin in impaired digestion. The only disease is impure blood, and its sole cause, impaired digestion. The Williamson sisters were entirely convinced Finally, they had found the cure they'd been looking for. They wrote to Linda immediately. As they corresponded with Dr. Linda, Dora and Claire grew more and more excited. And after several letters, Linda had convinced the pair her fasting treatment would entirely cure them of all their ailments. They were elated. The sisters decided they would visit Linda at her new sanitarium in Olala, Washington. She advertised it as a sort of countryside retreat. However, Linda regretfully informed them that the sanitarium wouldn't be ready until January 1911. In the meantime, however, she invited them to Seattle, where she was based, to begin their regimen before moving to the Olala facility. Claire and Dora jumped on the invitation. They told their family, who disapproved of alternative medicine, that they were headed to Canada. Claire wrote to Dr. Linda to express her excitement. She said, I would gladly stop eating anything as I get constant indigestion, so I'm counting the days until we arrive in Seattle and I can eliminate this matter collected in me. When the sisters arrived in Washington state, they met Linda at her office, where they were glad to find a confident woman with an answer to all of their questions. Like everyone who met Linda, the sisters saw a magnetism in her that made them trust her instantly. They couldn't wait to begin. Linda taught the sisters how to create a vegetable broth by boiling tomatoes in warm water. This would be one of the few foods they could consume. Every day, Linda explained, she would come to their apartment to administer osteopathic massages and enemas. The sisters didn't seem to have misgivings about the bizarre process. In their minds, the extreme treatment promised dramatic results, and they were all too anxious to see them. But after just the first week of fasting, Claire and Dora's hopeful dispositions faded with their strength. They were growing weaker by the day, and soon they found that the simplest things were exhausting. The sisters frequently fainted. One day, Dora heard Claire fall in the next room, but was too weak herself to get up and help her. But despite their extreme fatigue, Linda still pushed them to continue treatment. To guarantee the sisters could take enemas long past the point they lost their strength, Linda stretched canvas over the bathtub to support them when they were too weak to support themselves. Linda had the sisters lay on the canvas as she administered the enemas, which were painful and sometimes caused fainting spells, but she would insist, We must eliminate the poisons, dear girls. As the sisters' fast continued, Mary Fields, a neighbor who lived in an adjacent apartment, often heard the two women moaning through the walls. Over the weeks, as Fields observed Claire and Dora lose significant amounts of weight, she grew increasingly worried. When nurse Nellie Sherman, who worked for Linda, helped the ailing sisters take their daily walks down the hall, Fields took note of Dora and Claire's physical states. She recalled, Claire became so weak, she could hardly walk even with Miss Sherman's assistance. She would assist herself by placing her hand against the wall, as a child walking. The last time I saw her in the hall, it was very distressing to me to talk to her. She was so thin. It wasn't long until another neighbor, Clara Corrigan, took notice of the starving girls. What she saw disturbed her deeply. When Clara came for a neighborly visit, Linda was administering Claire one of her prescribed osteopathic massages. Clara observed Dr. Linda slamming her fists against Claire's emaciated thighs, back, stomach, and forehead. As Claire groaned through the treatment, Clara commented to Linda that the kneading seemed too intense. But the doctor quickly retorted that, on the contrary, the seemingly brutal massage served to promote circulation. Feeling worried for the sisters, Clara later returned when she was sure Linda had left. When she offered to give Claire a sponge bath, she noticed bruises all over her body. Dora's physical condition wasn't as dire as Claire's, but mentally, she was far worse. Dora couldn't converse with her sister. She could only rise periodically for a sip of orange juice, the sole sustenance Linda allowed her to consume. It's unclear if Linda treated all of her patients with the same level of attention that she devoted to the Williamson sisters, but her strict regimen made Claire and Dora feel as if the doctor had taken a special interest in their case. This was certainly true, though it wasn't the sisters' well-being Linda was concerned with as much as their wealth. A few weeks into their treatment, when the Williamson sisters grew so weak they could barely walk or think straight, Linda started inquiring into their finances. Linda eventually offered to keep their valuables in a safe in her office. At the time, neither Claire nor Dora saw anything wrong with Dr. Hazard's offer. But of course, as both of them were almost consistently delirious, they were in no state of mind to make that judgment. So the pair handed over their expensive jewelry, as well as their deeds to land in Vancouver, content in the knowledge that their trusted doctor would keep them safe. By March of 1911, over a month after the sisters began their treatment, their condition became so dire that even nurse Nellie Sherman grew concerned. When Claire became especially ill, Nellie called Dr. Augusta Brewer, an osteopathic doctor in Seattle who had treated Claire's spine before she'd seen Linda. By the time Sherman contacted Dr. Brewer, Claire had been fasting for over 30 days and Dora for over 40. For weeks, the sisters had consumed nothing but vegetable broth and orange juice. Dr. Brewer urged Nurse Sherman to feed the girls more sustenance, but it was no use. Sherman explained that Dora and Claire wouldn't eat anything more than what Linda recommended. As the days stretched on, Nellie Sherman's conscience only grew heavier. Soon, she also confided in Dorothea Keck, a cashier at the local grocery store where she shopped for the ingredients to the sisters' prescribed vegetable broths. According to Greg Olson, author of Starvation Heights, Nurse Sherman told Keck that she regretted working under Linda. She told her, If I knew what I was undertaking with the Williamson girls, I would never take another case like it. It's not worth it." But though Nellie Sherman nearly reached a breaking point, even after reaching out to both Dr. Brewer and Dorothea Keck, she would continue to stay loyal to Dr. Hazard. Disobedience in the light of an immoral act may seem baffling, but it's a very prevalent phenomenon of human behavior. Philosopher Hannah Arendt calls this the banality of evil. Arendt explains that even normal people can commit wicked crimes without questioning their actions, simply because someone in a position of power has ordered them to do so. And in the case of Nurse Nellie Sherman, there's no doubt that Linda's power and charm tightened its grip on her loyalty. Linda was Sherman's employer, entirely responsible for her livelihood. It's not surprising she stayed with the doctor despite the horrors she witnessed every day. She most likely felt as if she had no choice. In April of 1911, Four months into the Williamson sisters' fasting regimen, the pair was transferred to Linda's medical sanitarium in Olala. Despite the fact that it remained unfinished and without electricity, 43-year-old Linda deemed it sufficient for her eager patience. To the sisters, Linda was simply fulfilling her promise, but Linda had more nefarious reasons to bring the two women to Olala so soon. Out in the remote coastal town, Linda could further seclude the sisters. There were no curious neighbors in Olala, and further isolation meant more dramatic manipulation. And the weaker they got, the closer Linda got to their inheritance. In March of 1911, A pair of ambulances arrived to take the incredibly frail Claire and Dora upstate, where they would continue their treatments with Linda. The sister's neighbor, Mary Fields, came to say goodbye. She estimated Claire's weight at around 70 pounds and Dora's weight at slightly more. Mary stood next to Dr. Hazard, who, in her white coat, promised the girls a peaceful transition after their arrival at the sanitarium. But the Hazard Institute of Natural Therapeutics was a far cry from the paradise Dr. Linda had promised. Soon, the sisters would be introduced to a whole new host of horrors in a living hell on Earth, Starvation Heights. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back next week with part two of Linda Burfield Hazard's story. We'll follow the steady decline of the Williamson sisters' health and discover the reason why Linda's Washington sanitarium was shut down forever. For more information on Dr. Linda Burfield Hazard, amongst the many sources we used, we found Starvation Heights by Greg Olson extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other ParCast Originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast Originals, like Female Criminals, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Female Criminals on Spotify, just open the app and type Female Criminals in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram, at ParCast, and Twitter, at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Aaron Larson, and Joel Stein. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Bailey Benningfield with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Vanessa Richardson.